Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. This episode is, I guess, the latest uh, episode in a series of episodes that deals with hammams or bathhouses in the Ottoman Empire. I mean, this isn't a series that we planned, but it seems like we keep coming back to the issue of bathhouses. With Nina Aragon, we talked about the socio-political landscape of Istanbul through the bathhouse. Uh, and within, in, in an earlier episode, we talked, about, we talked to Burkai Pasin with, uh, uh, about how uh, baths in the Bosphorus were kind of this intermediary point between the hammam and the beach. Mm-hmm. So the life of the bathhouses reveals all these interesting uh, you know, issues in, in the history of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and our guest today uh, is another historian who's looked at some really very fascinating uh, dynamics inside the bathhouses of Aleppo. Um, She's Professor Elise Samarjian, an associate professor in the Department of History at Whitman College in Walla Walla. She is the author of a book entitled Off the Straight Path, which dealt with uh, sort of issues surrounding illicit sex and various aspects of uh, the Sharia courts in, in early modern Aleppo. And she's the author of a number of articles, including an article about the Ottoman government essentially being involved in regulating or policing nudity and contact between people in the bathhouses of Aleppo. So without further ado, Professor Samerjian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We're very happy to have you on. I enjoyed reading your article about the bathhouses in Aleppo. And so in tandem with Nina's talk about sort of studying, uh, for example, urban migration through the workers in the bathhouses, I thought your article is a nice compliment to looking at the early modern hammam space through the lenses of gender, but also uh, communal politics in Aleppo. So let's start with the title um, of the article. Okay. You like these, uh, t- it's a good title, I mean, Naked oh. Anxieties. Uh, for our listeners, you can find the bibliographical information on our website, ottomanistrypodcast.com. But let's talk about these naked anxieties. What are you referring to? I mean, the bathhouse mm-hmm. is a place where people are naked, but... Well, I mean, I think from the standpoint of juridical literature, we can find a lot of discussion about nudity, what constitutes nudity, and that nudity is defined in different contexts, especially when we're talking about Muslim women, although the rules also apply to men. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are a number of different anxieties around nudity and covering. And um, of course, the bathhouse presents a very important problem for covering because um, as we can see with some of the cases I looked at, there still were requirements to cover in the bathhouse, yeah. the aura or that particular space defined as nudity um, within different parameters. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, how are you going to regulate that in a space that simultaneously you need to expose yourself in order to properly clean? Mm-hmm. Um, and right. um, there's and a problem so the, for a then lot that of anxiety. It's for it's it's cross cultural. Yeah, of course. it's it not particular like, to Muslims yeah. at all. But what's interesting is how much Muslim jurists like to talk about it and mm-hmm. and work through these problems in um, whether it's in fatawa or in fiqh literature. So, and in this case, the core of the cases were Sharia court cases that I used. And so the hammam is sort of a space where uh, bodies are in contact in ways that are. Uh, not um, typically sanctioned, at least within whatever we can understand is the the public sphere, right? Mm-hmm. So it's some some space between the the home and uh, the street, so to speak, in that regard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's going to bring different groups, different bodies together that typically would not be in close proximity, 
but it also, um, I mean, interestingly brings um, different communities. I mean, for example, um, Muslim, Christian, and Jewish women mm-hmm. together. And, and then that creates another host of problems. Although on first reading, and I started to discover these cases many, many years ago, actually, in the late 90s, I started, yeah. to, see, I started to discover them one by one. And um, I guess first glance, you would think, what's the problem with women bathing together? Right? Because as long as women are not mixing with, other, with men, it, yeah, you would think, um, perhaps just at a glance, that it shouldn't be a problem, but it is indeed a problem, um, not only in the Ottoman context, but also from the standpoint of Sharia, where we can find even um, you know references in Hadith that are sometimes cited by jurists to so, say that non-Muslims should not be uh, in the mosque space or near bathhouses. Okay, so uh, this is a. It's not that women shouldn't be bathing together, or that there's rules regarding women bathing it's that certain women shouldn't be bathing with other women yeah, in this case you're saying muslim women in this context you know the this it, sometimes the cases would use the term the sanctity of muslim women that needs to be preserved um and and for that reason non-muslim women shouldn't be uh, able to see them exposed but i and we have to wonder some jurists wrote this but mm-hmm. was this actually a practical uh concern across time that was actually acted upon i think it was impractical and i think that's why my cases are really only for a 70 year period in the Uh 18th century from 1726 to 1795 and that's where the anxiety comes into play as well that there's really something about that period of time the 18th century where these boundaries are getting created and reified and and um and not only from the direction of muslim jurists but also uh, we have Christians who are writing about it as mm-hmm. well. They're concerned about Christian women who are um, behaving inappropriately or dressing inappropriately, yeah. um, doing things they shouldn't be doing. And the idea, it seems as though each community is actually concerned with some sort of contamination. And and so the, the bathhouse becomes really symbolic of that potential contamination as well. All right, welcome back. Chris Grayton talking to Professor Elisa Samarjian about her research uh, on anxieties about nudity and contact of bodies in the bathhouses of uh, early modern Aleppo and specifically 18th century Aleppo. Uh, Professor Samarjian, you've just mentioned that uh, this was a period in which there was a rising concern about contact between different communities or perhaps um, contamination of these communities and women in the bathhouse uh, serves as an extension of like sort of a, a larger conflict and, or concern, um, political anxiety, let's say. Before we get into that, I want to ask about some of uh, the cases you've examined in your research, uh, cases that came up in the Sharia court records regarding uh, bathhouses and, uh, you know, some of the tensions they reveal at the time. So some of our listeners will have a little sense of what's in a Sharia court record, but, like, what is the context in the court? What are the contexts within which bodies in the bathhouse enter sort of the documentary record? Well, the major omission is that we don't actually have women coming to the court in these cases. Uh-huh. It's contracts between men, which so tells men. us a lot about this, the nature uh-huh. of the, the issue, that 
I mean, this is really an anxiety that men are having about women in contact more than one that women are having themselves. And um, it's about men regulating women's bodies. And um, there was not a single case in which a woman appeared at court, but they were mostly contracts between the court and the guilds, that the guilds were told by the court that they were in violation, that they were allowing Muslim and non-Muslim women to bathe at the same time and that they needed to separate them. And so they would agree to adhere to a very complex schedule in which certain community members are allowed to use certain bathhouses on certain days. And so, um, you know, maybe Christian women would get to bathe on a Thursday, Muslim women would get to bathe on uh, a Wednesday. Um, And what I noticed was the bathhouses that were being listed were actually bathhouses that were in non-Muslim neighborhoods. And so it's important that these are measures being taken in non-Muslim, non-Muslim neighborhoods with the idea of really assuring that when Muslim yeah. women use those bathhouses in non-Muslim neighborhoods that they were not in contact with non-Muslim women at the same time. And then um, these were not exclusively for women, but most of the cases were. I discovered um, 10 cases over the course of the century. doesn't seem like a lot, but I'm really just looking okay. at the regulation itself and um, thinking about why it occurred when it did, because it did not occur during uh, my survey of the other centuries and other periods of time. Oh, so pro- we mm-hmm. presume that this was not something that was being policed at that time, or maybe kind of informally there was such a thing, or the, what's your take on that? You know, I, it's, 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 hard, um, it's hard to say, but I mean, I think if there was a stronger hand with regulation, because of the nature of regulation and the way that the guilds were brought to the court, on a number of different matters, okay. we would have seen it if uh, indeed it was a concern. That's so interesting. I think that it, it perhaps wasn't a concern at those times as much as it was for the 18th so century. So in the 17th century, for example, you didn't find it. Mm, not at all. And this is just uh, separating women, men? Men as well, men as well. but, okay, but so in a different way. Like Men actually weren't separated physically, but they were separated um, sart- like sartorial uh, in a sartorial way and by, by wearing particular uh, garments like for example they would wear towels with particular markings uh-huh. so that they would be marked out as non-Muslim in that space okay. but they could indeed bathe at the same time as Muslim men I mean the irony too is I mean Muslim men are subject to um, very similar modesty regulations. And we have jurists like Ibn Abdin who will tell, talk to us about specific body parts that are that constitute nudity on a male body. Um, and it seems as though the court was following that in some way because the towels also needed to be lengthened in order to cover the areas that constitute the aura for a, a Muslim male mm-hmm. between the navel the and privates, the knees. essentially, is and there's the one, translation. Yeah, the privates, Definitely, yeah. So aura can have have that many different meanings, but yeah, privates is probably the best um, way to define it in this context. And so there is a complaint that the towels were too short Uh and that genitalia was exposed. And that complaint comes to court, and so the guild's keepers come. That sounds like with, a pretty short towel. I mean, it must have been very <laughs> short. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, like, issue. <laughs> yeah I, so too short to actually um, constitute a good covering. So they actually brought um, the guild, and the guild promised to have towels of certain length made by mm-hmm. the towel makers in order to assure that Aura was not exposed on men. So the male cases aren't as frequent as mm-hmm. the female. And, but you're saying this anxiety is rooted in a particular 
historical context, right? That this is not a, I mean, I know you mentioned some jurists who talk about bathhouses as really dens of vice, but there's also mm -hmm. differing legal opinions right across time about these kinds of bodily contacts. So do you see like an increase uh, surrounding discourses regarding sort of same-sex relations that are occurring in the bathhouses at this time? This is something that writers had commented upon in the past. Yeah, is I that mean... part of that anxiety? I mean, it, it, it's, it's not in the, the okay. sources I looked at, but um, there is this, this link. I had to sort of figure out why non-Muslim women were a problem in particular. And um, there is this problem with desire or shahwa. Okay. And um, the jurists do talk about the fact that there's a potential, this, is, this was my conclusion, was that basically the non-Muslim woman is problematic um, because she's a conduit for male desire. It's the idea mm. that she could potentially report what she sees to other men. That's, that's Which the is core true. issue. That actually did That could have happened. I mean, you know, <laughs> women did talk about what they saw in the bathhouse, but anyway. Yeah. So the, the women are like extensions of the, the men, so to speak, who are extensions of a community, so to speak. And, mm -hmm. and so... I mean, it really puts something like Adult Swim that we have in, in the U.S. I always mm. took for granted that the kids are supposed to s swim at the public swimming pool at one time and mm. adults at another, but it puts in a little historical context. Why do, why do adults and kids need to swim separately? Here, we're, we have to ask the same question. Why on earth in this time period in the latter half of the 18th century would uh, Muslims and Christians need to bathe separately? Mm -hmm. Very fascinating. I mean, a, I mean, an anthropologist would you know look at Mary Douglas and talk about how well, of course, Muslim women and non-Muslim women have to bathe separately, but um, but there had to be something more to it. And there was a, a court case from 1762, I believe was the date, and it actually said that the non-Muslim woman, when she sees the Muslim woman nude, is she's gendered male. She becomes a man. And of course, she doesn't literally become a man, but it's really about her becoming the conduit for a male gaze uh -huh. um, at that point. But the irony is that one jurist actually that I found said that reporting what you see in a, in a bathhouse or in a private setting is actually okay if you're reporting some of uh, the nature of a woman's appearance to a man who has the desire to per perhaps marry her. Yeah. So in right. that sense, it's okay. It's halal. But when you have um, a, a situation in which it's a non-Muslim woman just sort of yeah. gabbing about a woman, um, God knows what she's saying, but anyway, um, you know, talking about her body shape or her hair and, and that sort of thing, then it's a different kind it of... It would presumably, I mean, the logic there is that then non-Muslim men could desire that woman for marriage, right? That's what you're... Or, 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 or even just it's, it's, being done in a, it's being done in a spirit that isn't about actually matchmaking, I guess, in the, in the other context, so... Mm. Oh, okay. It, but that, that's how I understood it. But still, I mean, yeah, maybe you don't want non-Muslim men desiring okay. um, Muslim women either. Welcome back. We're talking with Professor Elise Samarjian about her, really her article published in, in Ijmis regarding um, uh, the bathhouses of early modern Aleppo and Aleppo in the 18th century. Uh, and we've been, been talking about some of the ways in which anxieties about the contact of um, particularly women, um, Muslim women with non-Muslim women in the hammams, 
uh, fed into, I guess, a larger social context about anxieties, about boundaries between Muslims and Christians in general. Uh, and Professor Samarjan, what I've understood from what you're saying is that um, contrary to being a, uh, a universal anxiety that existed in Muslim societies or in Syrian or Aleppan society across time, that you find this anxiety about bathhouse context a contact to be rooted in a specific historical context. So, I mean, what do you make of this? What's going on between, um, you know, in understandings of community uh, in Aleppo during this time period or in the Ottoman Empire during this time period that you think is causing anxiety about the bathhouse and bathhouse mixing? Well, I actually got to benefit from some work of other scholars like Donald Cortert and Madeline Zilfi who've talked about the way that the rep rapid consumption of the 18th century produced anxieties as non-Muslims and Muslims were starting to look more like each other because they were mm. consuming similarly. Um, and so this, um, in particular, we can think about different kinds of fashions that emerge in the 18th century that we really have the Ottoman Empire um, incorporated into a more global economy. And so there are certain products that become... Um, Certain products like, uh, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, if it's ermine fur, certain kinds of furs and <laughs> different kinds of textiles <laughs> yeah. that I clearly don't wear, but certain kinds of furs that become uh, a point of anxiety for the, for the empire that they try to bar people from certain social classes, particularly non-Muslims from wearing mm -hmm. um, those, um, those commodities. And then we also have uh, the f only, I think, perhaps high-profile execution that we have documented is of a non-Muslim who actually wears the wrong color boots, and that's also an 18th-century case. And we have really this kind of idea that um, your comportment of your body, the, the, the clothing you're wearing, um, the way you're carrying yourself publicly starts to actually really matter. I mean, this, is, this is something that's not... It's not visible in a lot of the Ottoman historiography of the early modern period that communities have had ways. Everyone had a special hat. Everyone had colors that they used, whatever, even not just Christians, but on very minute levels, like identity was expressed through appearance in a lot of ways. And I guess what you're saying, the larger research on fashion during this time, it's showing a convergence of a sort of uh, urban, uh, a culture of urban consumption that is uh, eroding those boundaries that maybe society had, you know, essentially enforced by itself. With that convergence, you see anxiety about the erasure of, of boundaries, essentially, is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. True, very true. But is there something more to it than just fashion? Are people actually mixing in new ways during this period across these boundaries? I'm thinking on the other side, we have, we have priests who are talking about women also their fashions and their comportment is changing. And, and so it seems to me from both sides, you have a sort of a discursive hardening of boundaries that's mm -hmm. happening in the 18th century. Um, but I, I don't always have evidence from everyday life in my sources about yeah. how people are commingling. I mean, I think people, um, maybe the conversion case also, cases also show that, you know, boundaries are, are sometimes quite flexible. Uh -huh. Um, and maybe that's producing anxiety. Um, I mean, I let's talk about let's that. talk about Aleppo, though. I mean, so for this particular article, you've wor you've you focused especially on Aleppo. Perhaps it's general. This can be this is a point that can be generalized for 
other Ottoman cities of the time, a general urban culture, perhaps not. But when I think about some of the work on uh, socioeconomic transformation in Ottoman cities during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, including the work of Keith Wattenpah on Aleppo, you do see that with a, a socioeconomic change, namely the creation of an urban middle class, certain boundaries are transgressed, leading to some types of convergences, both in terms of appearance and lifestyle, but also some anxieties about that. I'm wondering what's happening in Aleppo at this time. This is a much earlier period. It's very mm -hmm. fascinating to find these anxieties erupting. I'm wondering what you make of that. Well, I mean, so I, I mentioned earlier that the 18th century is crucial for the Ottoman Empire sort of being absorbed into the global economy uh -huh. in a way that we see sort of rapid fire exchanges like with fashion and trends right. in the Ottoman Empire. And we're kind of a leisure consumption uh, kind of, uh, go ahead. Sure. In, no, we have to keep in mind that Aleppo is a, it's like a port kind of in a way. It's a mercantile uh, center. It's not necessarily inland city in that right. regard, it, even so geographically. It, yeah, because it's tied to Alexandria. Yeah, yeah. So it's, so yeah, it's, um, Aleppo is affected by that pattern. And of course the, the city's expanding, but also power we know also is being concentrated more in the provinces among these, you know, sort of elites in yeah. the provinces, especially in the 18th century and afterwards. So that's also important. Um, there's this other factor that's, that explains why also Christians would be concerned uh, and maybe even like the idea of reifying boundaries between communities at this time because they're in competition with the Catholics. Uh, which was is emerging as a force in the 18th century in Aleppo, um, especially in in Aleppo. So there's this competition as the Catholics are poaching off the Orthodox Christians to sort of retain boundaries around communities is very important. And um, so all of those things kind of converge together um, to produce factors that would make um, not only Muslims but also Christians amenable to the idea of boundary making um, and. And of course, we know too from s earlier scholarship that the Millet system is forged in this period of time. Okay. Right? Yeah. So rather than being an earlier phenomenon, so all of that kind of comes together, making the 18th century, helping explain why perhaps these cases would emerge in the 18th mm. century. I mean, yeah, we, we might not be able to explain it just through this case, but you know, this is relatively early compared to a lot of the discussion you just mm -hmm. mentioned. It's almost like you can see it taking shape in a little slightly earlier period through these like microcosms uh, of uh, urban space, urban spaces that blend the public and the private, such as the bathhouse. I think that it does, you know, elicit some questions about those very tensions that would become much more pronounced during the, the late Ottoman period. Right. And I, I, what, what this study taught me actually was that perhaps the 18th century is really where we should be looking for incipient modernity and the sort of creeping in of modern thinking. And I'm not saying that I had like the, the, sure. the, the silver bullet here, but, but that some of these cases are showing a new model of thinking about separation and um, identity mm -hmm. um, that I think are in some ways, I don't want to say modern, but they're sort of veering in that direction um, in the sense that there's a kind of disciplining that's going on in these cases of separation and, and sort of monitoring 
Um, and it, it's certainly not a panopticon, but it's a sort of yeah. an, an indigenous form of surveillance that the, the, the guilds have always been a part of that. Right. Um, that's perhaps what connects this work to my earlier work is the surveillance culture and the fact that it's very local localized. Mm -hmm. And so you don't need the Ottoman state to kind of come in and demand these things when you have the guilds and the court right. sort of You're do that work. You're talking about it from, from the ground up, essentially how this, this, uh, disciplining force is is constructed right yeah and the, i mean the ottoman edicts surely help because yeah. we know that this is something that empire was concerned with because there were numerous sultanic edicts mm. about these issues but um clothing and yeah. among other things well at least it's a it's a very uh thought-provoking piece of research reading it as somebody who worked more on the 19th and 20th centuries uh as is often the case when i read about you know, 18th or 17th century uh, I start to realize that a lot of things that seemed novel in later periods actually, you know, used to happen before in the past. Imagine that. And mm -hmm. so it's, uh, I mean, this, this discussion of the bathhouses uh, really would be very informative for the study of these urban spaces in later periods uh, as well. And I want to thank you for coming and, and presenting that research on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Now, for those who want to check out the full article published in IJMIS, we've got the bibliographical information on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, as well as a short reading list on the topic, uh, the publications of Professor Elise Samajian, as well as some other important background reading. That's a space to leave your comments and questions and get in touch with the Ottoman History Podcast community, now well over 20,000 followers uh, and hopefully still growing. Um, we want to invite you to leave your comments and questions. Let's get a little discussion going on the Facebook group. It's, there's nothing wrong with, with doing that. And uh, always stay tuned to find out about our other episodes as well as other content that we share from our partnered websites. That's all for this episode. I want to thank you all for listening and invite you to join in next time. Until then, take care.